Hello and welcome to the Uncommon Knowledge Podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emily. And today we're joined by Miriam Frankel, who's a third year DPhil student studying the history of English and Old English speech words. Uh, so Miriam, welcome to the welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, so today you're going to be talking to us about words, verbs for speech in yes, Old English. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so my thesis is a study of the verbs for to speak in Old English poetry. Um, I'm looking at a few Old Norse words as well out of interest for comparison because the two languages are related. But this is part of a general interest I have in the history of the English language and particularly Old English, which is, I think, much more interesting than most people think <laughs> at the first sight. Um, so essentially my thesis was based on a whole load of data that I gathered to do with the verbs of speaking in Old English. And I went through all the poetry essentially and found all the verbs for to speak, more or less, and then made a big database and tried to see how the usage, what the usage could tell me about what the different words meant. Mm -hmm. So how many, how many poems did you go through? Uh, that's a good question, to which I don't know the answer offhand. Um, so as quite a lot of people know, there are about five manuscripts of Old English poetry that survive. I say about because there are a few little bits that are not in those main manuscripts. Uh, but so the survival is not that big for the Old English poetic corpus, which is why I was able to cover all of it in my thesis. Um, and the length of the poems varies enormously. So Beowulf is not only the most famous, but also the longest by quite a long way. But then there are several others that are quite long and then lots and lots of very short poems. <laughs> and what made you choose uh, poems rather than prose? There's a few reasons for that. That's actually another really good question. Um, so there's a few things that are specific to poetry uh, in Old English. Old English has what's known as alliterative verse, which is a different type of verse form from modern English. This is partly to do with the change in the stress systems, the way that, that the, the speech would have been stressed in Old English versus modern English. So in Old English, uh, the words were almost invariably stressed at the start of the word, the very first syllable. And so that meant that that was the important bit of the word, if you like, whereas later the stress became more variable. Uh, but so therefore all of the Germanic languages had this feature and all of them share this alliterative tradition, which is uh, instead of having rhyming, which ties modern verse together usually, and that's a Latinate tradition, Germanic verse <coughs> tends to have alliteration at the start of the word. And that's what tends to tie the verse together in various different ways, depending on the language. So because all of the Germanic languages share this, you can compare the different verses within Old English and Old Norse and the other Germanic languages. Um, and, and there are some similar features, particularly with the verse form, which also carry through to things like language. So in other words, the short answer to that, to that question is that I was interested in trying to find out what the comparisons were in terms of language use across the languages. And that's much more defensible if you're looking at verse, which is has this a certain amount of common mm -hmm. usage. Um, incidentally, they also share some common background in terms of the, uh, the myth basis that seems to underlie a lot of the poetry is very similar. And what made you particularly want to focus on words for speaking? Yes, well, that was actually not my idea so much as my supervisor's. This is not going to go away. Um, <clears throat> my initial idea was to look at weapon words, which I think would still be quite fun, but probably requires more archaeological knowledge than I really have, <laughs> as my supervisor pointed out to me. Uh, but, but my supervisor suggested looking at speech verbs because verbs are understudied in general. It's harder to look at verbs because you get all the different parts of speech. Uh, especially in Old English, which is a bit more like some of the modern languages like French or Spanish, where there are lots of endings. So 
that means that there are lots of different forms of the verbs, which means that it's harder to search for things and it's harder to analyse everything. And you have to take more things into consideration when you do analyse them than you would for nouns. So in, on the whole, word studies have been more on nouns than on verbs. Uh, speech is an interesting area because there's quite a lot of different verbs for to speak in Old English. There's There's a good six or seven that mean just speak <laughs> um, rather than answer or mm -hmm. shout or anything related to speech um, and so we and we don't really know the differences between those uh, I mean we, we don't really know why there were so many or what the fine differences were between them if you think about modern English say speak tell you'll get some idea of the kind of differences mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which are quite hard to recapture unless you're a native speaker which is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about the speech words that you found in Old English. So um, I've looked at, as I said, most of the major verbs for to speak and I found a few interesting things. Uh, so we already know knew a little bit about some of them. For instance, madalian is a word that turns up quite a few times in Beowulf particularly. And we knew that it was fairly formal in the way that it was used. Uh, we knew that it only turns up in the third person past plural. Mother Lord, no singular, Mother Lord. Um, but we didn't know really a lot about what the, the connotations might be, other than that it was used quite formally and in this particular, in the same position in the line repeatedly and in this particular form. And what I found was that actually, if you look at every instance, it looks like most of them are happening in court settings. Almost all of them are happening in court settings, by which I mean between in, in a setting where you have a lord and then a retainer, so, so something like that, where there's a clear power structure happening. And quite often it's quite formal types of speech, so welcomes or gift giving or that sort of thing. So that's quite interesting and quite fun. Um, and it's the sort of thing that makes more sense when you look at every single instance and you try and analyse it. Um, what was rather more surprising was that I looked at another verb, completely different, other end of the spectrum, which is sejan, and sejan is extremely common, it's the most frequent verb for to speak in Old English poetry. And that would be the equivalent of the modern day... There's, um, there's two kinds of equivalent, depending <laughs> on how you define equivalent. In terms of usage, the closest modern parallel is tell, probably, I would say. <laughs> um, but in terms of descendants, we still have the modern English descendant of Sejan, which is Say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Say has, I think, moved quite a bit, quite a long way from where Sejan was, which is quite interesting as well. Uh, so this is this is sort of a side interest that I always have when I'm looking at my words, is what happens to them later. And that can be quite fun and quite interesting uh, and, and often surprising. I assumed that Sertan would be a bit like modern English, say, quite bland and quite broadly used for all kinds of, sort of the catch-all word for speaking. But actually what I found was it was used it quite consistently and quite carefully. It seems to have been associated with truth quite a lot and to have been used in those kind of earnest contexts almost exclusively. A bit like you would use tell rather than another word quite a lot if you were demanding speech from someone in various different And contexts. relaying accurate information. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so I think that was more or less the usage. Um, and as I say, I was a bit surprised by that. There is sort of a vestige of that usage that might have survived into modern English in the, in the form of soothsayer. So right. the old English word for truth is sooth, is sooth which becomes sooth. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, so what about the other other words that you've been looking at? 
So we have some verbs for old, in Old English have prefixes which go onto the front and have various effects on the meaning. So there's one that's a GE prefix, so you'd have yes Serjan instead of Serjan. And, um, and incidentally, the prefix is never stressed, which is kind of interesting. So the, the GE prefix is perfective, which is to say it, it causes a past sense, usually, and, and, a, and a completed past rather than an incomplete past. So uh, uh, the, the sort that would end in ED in modern English. Now, in Old English, some verbs just form their past tense using the GE pre prefix, but some have become full verbs in their own right, separated from the original verb using the GE prefix. And this happens with Sejan, probably, although it's kind of hard to tell because some <laughs> of the forms are the same. So you have to be quite sensitive in reading it. And th there are some clues as well um, in terms of if the verb is turning up in a past tense version of the Yesejan verb, then you have a pretty good indication that it's becoming a full verb in its own right. Mm. So that happens with Sejan. And it looks like Yesejan has a certain impact on the meaning. So the link with truth is much stronger in terms of statistics. And it's difficult to talk about statistics <laughs> when the body is as small as it is, but it is indicative of general trends. Um, so it looks like uh, Yesejan is more even more associated with truth than Sejan is, which sort of makes sense if you think about the, the, the sort of implications of having a completed type of idea behind a verb. So per perfectiveness could, could well intensify the meaning in those sort of ways. And then there's, a, there's another prefix, which is the just an A in front, Asejan. And that, that prefix is even harder to define in terms of what it does to the verbs than, than the GE, because it does all kinds of different things. But in the case of Serjan, it looks like it, it has something to do with difficult speech, because all of the instances of Asejan are around speeches that are very difficult, either because they are so often, often in speeches where someone's trying to describe God, which is obviously kind of difficult, or where they're trying to narrate something awful, which is also difficult in a different kind of way. Um, so they, they seem to be around the extremes of speech, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I, I looked at the Norse comparative data for, for Sehajan. So there's in Old Norse, we have rather more poetry which survives. And some of it has strong parallels with the Old English body in terms of verse form and that sort of thing. So I looked at that, which is the, the verse of the Codex Regis, which is a big manuscript that contains what's known as Edic verse. So Old Norse is divided into Edic verse and Scaldic verse, and they're quite different in terms of the way that they are written and the, and the composition. And Edic verse is the closer to, to Old English verse. And so that's why I looked at that. <laughs> and the Codex Regis is quite useful because it's a contained body of verse. Uh, whereas there's quite a lot of verse scattered among the sagas, which is then a bit harder to authenticate and it's some, sometimes more contested and more corrupted. But, but the Codex Regis is a sort of con con continuous body. So I looked at that and what I found with, I actually only looked at Segya, which is the cognate to Sehajan. But what I found with Segya was exactly the same set of things were happening with usage, which is really quite surprising. It's really cool. Uh, if we think about the timescale a moment, so Old English is is probably being composed uh, around 600 maybe or 700 and nothing really survives in writing before 700 and most of it is probably more like eight or 900 that we that what, what we have is probably dated from around then. And then Old English sort of ends, in theory, roughly around the Norman Conquest, so 
that's the date that sort of, yeah exactly actually of course nobody it's not like everybody stops speaking english instantly in fact they never really stop speaking english but it gradually shifts into middle english after the conquest but in terms of the poetry that's all recorded mm -hmm. fairly early we think although it's contested um if we think about the old norse situation so uh old norse icelandic is literature that was probably composed in Norway and some of it we have dates for because we have all of the we have a list of court poets and when they were around which kings they served under and then most of the poetry in the Scaldic tradition travels with a poet which is kind of very very different from the old English tradition where you don't have any poets you just have the poetry and we have no idea mostly who wrote any of it there's a few that we have a clue but basically mm. nothing but in the Norse tradition, as I say, they tend to travel with their poets, and so that's kind of fun. Um, but the Eddic verse does so less, um, and the all of the body of Norse literature was written down in Iceland after the year 1000, when Iceland converted to Christianity and learned to write, consequently. Um, <laughs> but it was probably imported from much earlier, from, from Norway and Scandinavia. So that's kind of interesting. So that gives you sort of a potted idea of, of the two literatures. Um, but my point really was that if they are sharing these kind of usages, they're probably dating back to quite a long way, because it must have been before the migration into England. And it probably we're talking about what's known as the Proto-Germanic period, which is probably, well, fourth or fifth century. So. It's also interesting that they've retained that <laughs> usage as well for several centuries. That's exactly right. Um, it must have served some important function. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever find um, that it's not just context dependent, but that some like characters in poems might be more likely to speak in those ways that are associated with truth than others? Like, is that a way of saying one person is trustworthy and another perhaps not? Yes, it does definitely cut both ways. And it's always dodgy trying to do the kind of thing I'm doing because you, you never really know it's very hard to recapture this material and and there are probably things that we simply miss because we're too far detached from the situation but i i think there are some verbs that seem to be used in more lying contexts and they also tend to be used by for instance devils whom you would expect to be less truthful and then there are other verbs that seem to be used in more positive contexts and incidentally certain is also used by a few figures that I think tend to be more authoritative. So it seems to be used quite a bit of writing, of different kinds of writing. And the words for writing, so things like book and um, writing, <laughs> and those kind of nouns in Old English, as in Modern English, are a little bit ambiguous. So it's not clear what they refer to. And particularly in the context of poetry, quite often they might refer to scripture, but we don't really know. So that's kind of interesting. But uh, so that the fact that is that Seton is used by those kind of speakers and also by people who seem to know generally what they're talking about. So the people who are answering the questions tend to have their speech introduced or requested using Seton. Um, that all suggests to me that it it sort of strengthens that view I have that it's to do with speech, with truth. Is there any sense that sometimes these poems are using words ironically? Yes, you do get... I mean, I'm sure that they did use irony. It's very hard to know now, of course, looking of course. back. Because of, uh, for me, really, uh, irony would just be an aberration to my data. Which is kind of a problem. But um, there are... I think there are a couple of instances of said I'm being used by dishonest 
characters, but usually when well, they should know better. Their name starts with S. It? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. So <clears throat> one of the odd things with with verbs is that they are one of the groups that are less likely to carry alliteration. So there's quite complicated rules about mm. which words carry alliteration and which words don't. And um, some kinds of verbs carry alliteration quite often, and other kinds less often. And when I say kinds, I mean forms. So forms like the infinitive and participles, which are in one way not really verbs at all, so they're, they're verbs being used in odd ways, they quite often carry alliteration. But um, other forms, so, so forms that, that we would more normally associate with, with verb as a word, usually don't carry alliteration. So they're one of the groups that it's not the highest priority for alliteration. Uh, but interestingly, some verbs within my set carry alliteration quite frequently, and some hardly at all. So that suggests something about status, maybe, or, or usage, or maybe just poetic language. It's hard to read into it too much, but yeah. Um, but actually, Sejan, Sejan alliterates with sof quite a lot. <laughs> and this is a problem for me, <laughs> because it could just be expediency. But I think if the link is made and if it's strong enough, in one way it doesn't matter what the reason is, because eventually that would become part of the connotations of that word anyway. Yeah. And it, it's it's commonly associated, the two are commonly associated with one another, so exactly. um, it's not just one poet who's decided to, right. to associate these two. That's right. Yeah. Um, and incidentally, I mean, you can think about the comparison with truth and tell alliterating. Maybe that's still part of why tr tell has this earnest quality. Are there lots of such pairings, words that you traditionally see, like the building blocks of poems together? Um, sorry, I didn't... Like um, words that are usually alliterated together, so oh, that you sorry. quite often see them repeated you do see, a pattern. You see, you see some alliterative pairs like that, um, that, that are known as, it's known as collocation when they, when they turn up in the same line over and over again. You see that some of the time, but not as much as I had thought you would. Just like you don't get as many repeated lines as I thought you would, or formulas even. So that that that's quite interesting that it happens so much with Sajan, especially since it's such a common verb. Incidentally, I've thought of something else I was going to say, which is um, in answer to your question about irony. So Madelian is, is, as I said, very consistently used in a specific kind of way, um, in a, quite a formal court setting. And I sort of suspect that it's being used with a certain amount of irony in uh, the Battle of Malden, which is a poem that recounts a famous English defeat, <laughs> in fact. As the, uh, the Danes. Exactly, yeah. exactly so. So the, the English army was, or a, a small body of the English army, was uh, cornered on a, on a promontory and the Danes were attacking them and they lost, is the short version. <laughs> um, Possibly because their leader, Bertnoth, made some rather foolish decisions, but that's debated, <laughs> highly debated, notably by Tolkien. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but anyway, Motherlord is used by Bertnoth, the leader, when he's addressing the messenger from the Danes, which is quite interesting, mm. because in that speech he, he essentially does a parody of a gift-giving scenario. So the... The messenger of the Danes has come over to say, will you surrender, essentially. And Bertnoth essentially replies, fat chance, but he does so <laughs> quite wittily. So he says, 
um, the only ransom you're going to get from us, because that's what the Danes want if they're going to surrender, the only ransom you're going to get from us is our weapons. That's essentially the pun mm. he makes. So you're, And of course, the weapons are very valuable then, so it really works as a pun, and mm. they're often gifts as well. Mm. But what he means is, we're going to kill you, of course. <laughs> um, and he introduces that speech using, or at least the speech is introduced using Madalian, which is very formal, which fits mm -hmm. that sort of formal gift-giving idea, except it's not really a gift-giving, it's an insult. So, yeah. So the writer of the Battle of Mon had a bit of a sense of humour. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like he might have. Does that word have a modern descendant, or is it no, fallen? No, it, it hasn't got a proper modern, well, not, not, in, not in standard English, I should say. But there is a dialect word which m might well be related, which is mardle. I have a sneaking suspicion that mardle, have a mardle, might well be related. It means have a chat. It's quite, yeah. it's sort of have a good natter. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it's East Anglian. If I, I might be wrong on that, but if I remember correctly, I think it's East Anglian. Cool. And do these, I, I don't know if you, I guess you haven't done any studies into Middle English, but do these words, um, continue with these meanings? Some do, some don't. Uh, I haven't really looked at meaning in great detail. Mm -hmm. There, I, So there are sort of quick and easy ways of trying to guess whether the meaning is still the same, and then there are proper thorough ways of doing <laughs> it. I haven't done the latter, but I have done some of the former, so I've done things like looking at the Middle English Dictionary mm -hmm. and seeing what they think these words mean with some of the words. I haven't quite done all of them yet. Um, and on the whole, what I've found, and I sort of have a sneaking suspicion this is just generally true, is that elements of meaning survive much longer than I would have thought. So I actually think that the meaning of words changes quite slowly. Or at least, if you look at all of the meaning, there's a kind of slow progression, and there's a remnant that remains for a long time, which is quite interesting. I sort of have a, an idea that maybe you can recapture some of the general connotations, almost cultural connotations, if you if you dig hard enough mm -hmm. at the words. What happens between Old English and Modern English? Do the words change their meaning? or? Great question. Yeah. Uh, so there's quite a range of things that affect that body of words. Uh, so we can think about any set of words as a semantic field, so a, a whole group of words that mean a range of things within a general area. So speak, say speak tell is quite a good example of that. And they all, we think, influence each other. So there's a sort of theory in linguistics that languages abhor a complete synonym, synonym. So they don't tend to like two words that mean exactly the same thing. So languages tend to try and avoid that. And that means that if you borrow a word that's quite close to a word you already have, that tends to affect the meaning and they move against each other. So if I give you some concrete examples, uh, in Old English we have a word for shirt, which is in fact shirt. <laughs> when the Norse population starts to settle in England, we at some stage in that period borrow a word which also means shirt, but is pronounced skirt. And incidentally, quite a lot of the skirt words in English are from Norse. Now, this results in a shift in meaning between the two. So they still both mean clothing, but they specialise one, they sort of differentiate a bit. And actually, when you think about it, what a shirt would have been back then might be quite a lot closer to something that could be either a skirt or a, a shirt. Tunic. It would have been longer, yeah. exactly, mm. probably. Uh, so it does make some sort of sense. But you see that sort of pattern quite a lot. You see the same with animal and deer, for example. So animal is the Latin word for 
the old English term deer, and deer used to mean all animals and has specialised to mean a specific sort of animal when an animal got borrowed. So if we look at speech verbs, something similar is definitely happening, but trying to track exactly how and what is happening is harder. Does the sort of native English word have an advantage in the battle between an imported <laughs> word and a native word to see who gets to claim the original meaning? Not necessarily. Um, it's, it's very variable and nobody really knows exactly what governs where the shift happens or why. Probably connotations have something to do with it, so that might influence the shift one way or another. Sometimes um, you even get the same word borrowed twice at different stages in language, which is quite fun. And then they can mean different things, which is quite interesting. Do you have an example of that? <laughs> I will have an example later. <laughs> Check the blog for example. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, but... Um, uh, so I was going to actually mention calc borrowings, which is one of the other kinds. So you get, um, as there's lots of different ways you can borrow words, as I, as I said. You can borrow um, by directly borrowing, importing a word and, and making it sound like your language and then using that in your language. But you can also borrow an idea, the idea of a word, and translate it, especially if it's a compound. So you get that with things like, well, one of the best examples is hedgehog. Hedgehog is a loan translation that's known as a calc um, from the Latin for that animal, which is porcupine. Porcus being a hog mm -hmm. and pine being more or less the same as hedge. <laughs> <laughs> And that's sort of an example of a double borrowing as well, because we then, having calced the verb, the word rather, we then borrow it again, uh, but this time as the Latin, and we mean the slightly different animal. Yeah, that's, that's, so cool. that's sort that's of really an example. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. What else um, have we calced? What else have we calced? Gosh, I can't think of anything right now. Sorry, that's that always unfair. the example I think of. But uh, yes, there are a few of those. You can, you can. They're sort of hard to spot because you have to know what the source word is to be mm. able to work out that it's a calc. Um, but Old English calcs a few things from Latin because there's so many words in in Latinate vocabulary that describe religious matters, which in Old English had had didn't have any of the vocabulary for. I mean, obviously, it had religious vocabulary, but it was pagan religious vocabulary, not Christian religious vocabulary, and that some problems and incidentally similarly latin structure is very different from old english structure so latin structure um, involves a lot more different tenses than old english had so old english started to try and adapt itself to create more tenses in fact old english as modern english really only has two tenses the present and the past and everything else is done with what are known as auxiliaries or modal verbs things like would and should and could and may and might and, and will, <laughs> all those which affect the tense and, and the mood and the aspect and various other, other weird terms for what happens to verbs. But in Latin, most of those things would be done with endings and within the verbs. So when Anglo-Saxon writers are trying to translate Latin, they come across this problem persistently and so they try to find ways around it. So for a long time, if you wanted to say that you wanted to do something in the future, you would say, I do this tomorrow. And then it's quite clear that you mean, I will do this. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point in the Old English period... What if you wanted to say, I want to do this, like, in a few years' time? Would you 
say I want to do this tomorrow in a few years time or would the few years time change the meaning by itself? It would probably change the meaning by itself. I mean, essentially, the, the tense, if you like, then isn't held in the verb at all. It's held in the words around the verb. This happens in several languages. I mean, it's not... But it's, it's particularly a feature of Germanic languages, which tend to have fewer formal tenses. Um, it's, yeah, it's an oddity of the Germanic branch of Indo-European. But uh, in Old English, they start to use words that verbs that originally had specific meanings to start to mean future so willan is the is the example i'm particularly thinking of willan originally is to do with desire i wish to and you can see how that could become the future if you are optimistic <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So exactly. everything, every time you say I will do something, it's because you want to. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's exactly how it happens. Very, there's something very sort of philosophical about the whole thing. <laughs> there's often that aspect to language change. It's very satisfying. But going back to my little group of speech verbs, um, I, I sort of suspect that part of what's happened to say is that it's been affected by the borrowing of tell. Tell is a, is a Norse loan. And it's originally to do with counting, as as you may know. So to, you still get some some instances of that, but it's sort of fossilized. Oh, so, like with when you're counting um, the bank cattle. teller. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Both of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's still just about in fossilized usage, but the standard usage is now much more like say. But because it was to do with counting, there's something fundamentally accurate about that. And because sooth became less common than tell, than truth, rather, I suspect that the collocative link between say and sooth weakened, and a kind of cognate link developed <laughs> between tell and true. And so that's how that shift sort of happened. That's, that's my theory, but I'd have to do quite a lot more research to be sure about that. So I never thought about it, but forsooth is just one of those words that I ignore in text because I don't know what it means, but it means for truth. Or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's another example of the kinds of language change that can happen. So with that, with, with forsooth, you can see that the, me the meaning of it has deteriorated very dramatically. So at some point it actually meant for truth and it was very earnest. And now it's kind of become something, if it's used at all, that's used kind of slightly ridiculously as some sort of emphasis, like a really stupid version of very, maybe. <laughs> um, and that's quite a common change. The same sort of thing has happened to soon. In Old English, soon means immediately. <laughs> and now it means soon. <laughs> and so you can, and again, you can totally see how that happens. I'm coming just now. <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm coming just now. <laughs> Does very have any relation to truth in that it's sort of like verity, verity that's or a really verily? good question and i haven't thought about it very likely i think uh almost certain uh so veritas is the latin word mm. that from which we get verity and verily definitely but very i'm not so sure but it's quite likely it's in, it's close enough that i would get yes. a trip to etym online exactly <laughs> yes yes the oed would be the place to look oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was going to go to Wikipedia. <laughs> I mean, the OED is quite good. Um, uh, it has some etymology for, for things, and, and usually quite good etymology. So what's useful about it is that what you get on there is usually 
what is fairly well-established etymologies rather than people just having a go or, or, or even areas that are quite debated because often they are very debated. I mean, it's quite hard to establish etymologies. So you mentioned uh, Tolkien before yeah. in relation to the Battle of Malden. Malden. Malden? Either. Um, <laughs> and since we are in Exeter College and yes, it, it seems I have to follow this up, what was his controversial view about the Battle of Malden. So, and is it related to Malden salt? Well, it is in, in that uh, it's the same place. So Malden is a place, which is where the battle happened. This is how term, t- titles quite often travel. Uh, incidentally, I should mention that none of Old English poetry has titles attached to it in the manuscripts. So we've just found names for them. Uh, but, but the Battle of Malden seems like a reasonable name because it's where the battle takes place. Um, so Tolkien was one of the first scholars to really tackle this poem as literature. And he did this for quite a few other Old English poems, most famously Beowulf. But when he looked at the Battle of Malden, Tolkien identified a particular point of turn within within the narrative of, of the battle. So I should perhaps explain the situation a little bit clearer than I did last time. Essentially, the English army is on a, a promontory, which is linked by a narrow causeway to an island off which the Vikings are trying to attack. So this is quite defensible for the Anglo-Saxon army because they just need a few few men, strong men, across that causeway and they can block the entrance. The Vikings get wise to the fact this isn't a very good deal. And so they ask to be allowed onto the mainland in order to fight properly. Mm -hmm. And for a number of reasons, which may or may not be foolish, (laughs) the leader of the English army agrees and allows them to come onto the mainland and then they lose horribly. I mean, I have to say that does initially seem like a mistake. Exactly. So the arguments in favour of Berthnoth's decision, the the strongest probably, is that over this period, the Vikings are harrying the whole of the English coastline and they're really causing all kinds of mayhem. If they had no joy here, there's absolutely nothing to stop them getting on their boat and sailing two metres further upstream or, (laughs) I mean, that's a terrible, that's completely mixing my metaphors, but um, sailing a, a few miles further Mm-hmm. further up the coast and harrying that village where there would be no army to stop them whatsoever. So there is a sort of incentive for Bertnoth to engage the army when he does, where he does. But whether you think that's a good enough reason to cede the land is really where the crux turns. Um, that and one word, which is the word that Tolkien noticed. So there's this unusual word, which actually only occurs in this form in this poem. So it's a it's a it's a nonce usage. It only occurs once. Is overmode. So mode is a mind, heart, spirit sort of word in Old English, and it's prob- it's almost certainly related to modern mind. Actually, thinking about it, uh, is definitely. The, the descendant, the direct descendant, must be mood. But <clears throat> um, but mode has this flexible meaning, and over is like modern over. It's too much, probably. We don't really know. <laughs> Especially once you put it into a compound, because that changes the meaning a bit anyway. So, yes, we're not quite sure what this means. And Tolkien thinks that it means he was he was too courageous or he was too proud particularly proud confident confident something yeah. like that so so he he combined sort of high heroic courage with pride hubris hubris exactly 
and that's and and Tolkien thinks that the poet of the Battle of Morden is is really judging that defeat based on the overmord mm -hmm. of Burtnoth. Other people have interpreted this word slightly differently. Other people have disagreed with Tolkien, but his view is still hugely influential. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is alliteration. Um, and just thinking about it, the extraordinary number, like sort of the scope for poetry, it must be so great when that's the that's the form formal requirement and it's not rhyme or meter. In some ways that must be very freeing, I imagine. You must be able to do an extraordinary number of things. And it's funny because today we don't really think of alliteration as a high poetic form or device. Yes, I mean, it's still, it's you still have quite a few, the constraints are still there, they're just slightly different constraints. Um, but there, I think certainly on the ear it's a bit less obvious maybe, so it's it's slightly more subtle and quite, quite a bewitching kind of uh, effect. So one of the things that Tolkien did, which, which is really well worth looking at, is he translated a few actually Middle English poems, which are alliterative, into modern English. So he translated the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Pearl and Sir Orpheo into alliterative, modern English alliterative verse. And because he was very clever, he managed to keep the metre the same as well. And I read these, oh, long, long ago, before I started studying anything, long ago, because I like Tolkien. And I was quite bemused by the experience because I hadn't read the introduction. I read, I didn't, I read the introduction after I read the poems. And so I didn't know what he had been doing. And I didn't know that they were a meter particularly because it's not nearly so obvious mm. in terms of the layout either. And I kept thinking, this feels like verse, but it's not rhyming. <laughs> I can't see what's happening here. And it took me ages to realize that it was the fronts of the words that were, that were creating it. Mm. So yeah, it's it's quite an interesting effect and, and uh, would be fun to experiment with, I imagine. It's kind of incantatory almost. Yeah, Mesmerizing. something more it's like that. Lures you in without being too obvious. Maybe. It's perhaps closer to prose in terms of speech rhythms and things mm. like that. Um, but there's a few things about Old English particularly uh, and the way that, that the alliterative verse form works there that might that change that slightly. So in Old English, the rules are quite strict. It has endings rather than being relying upon the order in which the words are, are placed in a sentence to make sense. Um, that means that you can change the order of the words quite dramatically. Now, there is a standard word order, which is much the same as modern English, but in verse, you can completely mess that around much more than in modern English. And for the sake of the meter, that happens quite a lot. In fact, there are sort of set ways in which you change the word order in order to force the stress onto specific words. So it would have sounded quite different from prose, more different from prose than maybe we, we now appreciate easily. Um, and there are also quite strict rules about how many words can alliterate in a line and which, which there are what's known as metrical positions. So there are positions of metrical stress within each line. And which, which words can and cannot carry that stress vary and which positions can and cannot alliterate is kind of dictated as well so it's quite a it's quite a difficult meter in some ways and there seem to have been quite a lot of rules around it which we don't really understand all that well at least we're still disputing quite a lot of them and Norse incidentally has a similar set of rules it has diff more different kinds of verse we know more about the different kinds of verse because someone very helpfully wrote a treatise on the different kinds of verse <laughs> in Norse at the time so that's quite helpful 
Um, but we, yeah, so we have we have different different kinds of verse in Norse, but but essentially the same, roughly the same principle. But some of them are tighter as well because they count the syllables, which Old English doesn't do in general. Um, just to to finish up, maybe you could read us a little bit of Old English. Sure. Yeah. Um, why don't I read you a bit of, in fact, that introduction that I mentioned where Burtnoth is telling the Viking messenger where to go. Burtnoth Mathalord, Bord Havenord, Wand Wackner Ash, Werdum Malder, Ure and Anrad, Hageath him Answare. Excellent. It sounds so nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole section is introducing his speech, he's about to speak. And you might have recognised one or two words. So answer is answered. indeed answered, yeah. Ure is ire, anger. Hmm. Um, Anrad has not survived, but it's quite a famous word because it describes a, one of our kings rather famously. Ethelred, Ethelred, the unready. the unready. But actually doesn't mean unready, it means badly counselled. Um, ash is exactly the same word, it's still ash, but it in this case refers to a spear. And wordum is word, uh, board is board, but in this case means shield. So quite a few of the words you'll notice are actually still in modern English. Have an order is how. So basically comprehensible basically to yeah. uh, any, any reader of modern English. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> There's no excuse for not reading the Battle of Malden. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, um... Thank you so much, Miriam, for so for being on the on the podcast. Thank you, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we will have more information on things that Miriam's been talking about on our blog, which is uncommonknowledgeoxford.wordpress.com. We'll see you next week.